it was an awareness that work is now being approached by the wealthy in a way that is more consuming of leisure time rather than yielding of leisure time. It's being invested with perhaps too much expectations of providing meaningfulness. And the degree to which, say, young people are now saying by a factor of 95% that the most important thing in their future is to have a fulfilling career, this outstrips the answer to make a positive impact on other people's lives, which only 81% of young people are saying, and the answer to be happily married, which only 47% of people, young people are ranking as their top priority out of life. That's a change insofar as work is no longer being viewed as a potential source of drudgery in need of reform or an area of life that needs to be limited in terms of its impact and absorption on our mental and physical energies, but actually is being freighted with too much in the way of expectation that it will deliver. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Hansen. Jeffrey is a senior philosopher at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science. He's edited two books and authored two others, most recently, Philosophies of Work in the Platonic Tradition, A History of Labor and Human Flourishing. Jeffrey is also an Anglican priest. So we'll be discussing several topics, including work and meaning. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I do eventually want to get to work and meaning uh, as sort of the bulk of what we'll be talking about. But I want to start not by talking about the philosophy of work, but ecclesiology. So what does Anglo-Catholicism uniquely have to offer to the modern church? One thing that springs to mind is that Anglo-Catholicism, I think, views the liturgy as a potential model for how society as a whole should operate that in the liturgy, we get a glimpse of how people are meant to relate to one another outside of what you would call, say, a liberal, standard liberal, small l political context and uh, in the kingdom of God as it's being instituted and advanced in our world. So I think that society itself could be modeled on the liturgy, the Anglo-Catholic imagination and how it might extend itself. We see that work having been done in the early 20th century with some of the more radical elements of the Anglo-Catholic movement, Stuart Headlam, for example, an avowed Christian socialist, which is a word, a uh, combination of words that I think has always been allergic to the American sensibility, but had serious cachet, uh, certainly in the UK. So to draw that out a little bit more about how public life can be modeled after the liturgy, I'm, I'm really intrigued by specifically what you mean by that. Well, I think the liturgy provides something like a, a cosmological vision. And when I do my preaching or when I try to teach on theology, I guess what I'm trying to present to people is a kind of cosmological view of the Christian mind and imagination. And I don't know if that's the best word for it, but it intersects, I think, with some other possible trends coming out of, say, Eastern Orthodoxy that are also emphasizing this sort of cosmological or kind of symbological dimension of the faith, that Christianity is not sort of a therapy. It's not uh, a social program, right? But it's a view of reality that is comprehensive and exhaustive. And the liturgy participation in it uh, acclimates us to that cosmology and shapes our being according to its inner logic, not only in terms of our thinking, but even uh, our bodily uh, postures and gestures and dispositions are shaped by the discipline of the liturgy. And I think ultimately what we're trying to convey and that the Anglo-Catholic tradition is sensitive to in terms of the celebration of the Mass is something like that deep cosmological vision of reality itself, which means that it has it's going to have social impact, right? It's going to have an overflow in terms of how we think about our dealings with one another, what we owe to one another, and how I think we um, ought to conduct ourselves even, say, economically or with respect to our our political 
associations. You know, we don't, the liberal political order on my view is premised on a kind of um, what John Milbank would have called a, a primordial violence, a vision of reality according to which uh, conflict is the norm and that the name of the game politically is to somehow manage conflict. I take it that the Christian logic is is not a is not that, but is the logic of abundance, of superabundance, and we're invited to participate in that, which means that we have to cultivate a very different mindset. You know, we are not in rivalry with our neighbors over limited goods. Right? You know, we are not in a state of primordial conflict that has to be then kind of um, managed in ad hoc uh, ways or according to say certain techniques or managerial tactics. These are all band aids. We could look back to a figure as ancient as Augustine to, I think, prove that to us. So that the social order has to look more like uh, participation in abundance rather than rivalrous or contentious competition. Rene Girard, of course, would have a lot to say on that as well. And I think the liturgy trains us out of that, of that mindset and causes us to look toward a logic of abundance and what that implies. In terms of some of our practical decision making, I think, you know, we, we, we ought to prioritize and look to ways that we can support our fellow Christians, and especially in our immediate local context. The Catholic Church is Catholic, not because it's universal, but because every locality, every instance of the church is the whole, right? So we are we are not localists in the sense that we're appealing to the local as a kind of bulwark against the anonymous swarm, <laughs> but we're looking to the local because it's an expression of the universal. And that means to me that our concern for where we've been placed, our concern for the people amidst whom we've been placed, uh, is itself the calling. It's the calling to serve the universal within that. But that means that we have to think, for instance, you know, if I have a fellow parishioner who's trying to make a living as a carpenter, if I have the opportunity to support him by buying a table that he's crafted by hand for maybe slightly more money than I would have paid at Crate and Barrel, then uh, perhaps I should do that. So th thanks so much for, um, for that. There's a really interesting perspective on Anglo-Catholicism. I want to move now to some of your research on work. So I want to talk a little bit about the nature of work itself. So must work to be considered good actively engage all forms of human strength, namely the strength of the body, mind, and spirit? I think the best work probably will do something like that in varying levels of engagement. Some work, which we're apt to call intellectual or white collar or something like that, will emphasize certain aspects more than others. And in that event, it may be that we should be doing different kinds of work, even if some of that is avocational or unpaid. Ruskin talks about this. He thinks that even gentlemen should have a, a handcraft of some sort. They should know how to do certain kinds of things that are more bodily in terms of their orientation. I recently visited a school very much organized around a classical type education, the seven liberal arts. They also teach all the students uh, blacksmithing, drawing, leatherwork, and uh, woodworking. And that's an express effort to sort of engage the, the body in education. But those things also have an impact on the mind. I think it's important not to make uh, hard and fast distinctions there either. I think learning to draw, for instance, in the classical educational program was really viewed as a way of learning how to see reality as it is. You know, that's not drawing is not a matter of perfecting a fine art so much as it is a matter of perfecting uh, the faculty of perception. Right. So how do we how do we look at reality? And thinking about that, say in connection with what Simone Weil has to say about attention, or what I Iris Murdoch has to say, are really just ways of of engaging the body in in a whole person effort to attend to reality properly which is itself a project that has moral implications, right? To be able to attend reality is to be able to respond to it uh, as well. And we can think about that in certain just very ordinary instances, it seems to me, you know, that we, you know, the person who is um, asking for money on the side of the road as we're waiting at a stoplight, you know, is someone that we are disinclined to pay attention to because we know what that would mean, right? That would mean that we would then feel moved to somehow help that person. <laughs> and if we're, if we're not inclined to do that, then we look away, right? So that we govern our moral responses to reality in large part by what we choose to pay attention to. And I think something like the engagement of the body does have that sort of higher implication, as it were. It's not just a matter of learning how to work steel or work wood or work leather or draw properly. It's a matter of attuning ourselves to reality itself 
And much work uh, does that. I think Matthew Crawford eloquently described that in his book about how manual labor really does engage the mind in ways that we, I think, tend to overlook or to give second place to. And yeah, so I think at the end of the day, probably all forms of work would at their best do indeed draw on the full range of human capacities. Right. So in that case, what is work? So I pick out one definition, the beginning of the book, which I think serves well to answer to kind of our contemporary instincts about this and that we want to say, and I think without, not without some reason, that work is something like a purposeful activity designed to make an alteration in the external world. That I think has some merit, but I think it does fail to capture another whole dimension, which is the degree to which work was conceived in the pre-modern period as also being an effort to alter one's own character or one's own self or way of responding to reality. So I take it that work is something broader in the sense that it's not necessarily an effort at making a change in the external world, but it is an effort directed at changing reality. And that may be the reality of your own self or the setting in order of your own character, which takes some expenditure of effort. And I think that's something that we see in Ruskin's work being emphasized that work is something like the investment, it's a cost or an investment of effort of one's own life in the securement of some good. And that may be an external good, that may be the creation of a product, sort of paradigmatically, but it may also be the winning of some genuine good that can only be had with effort. And that might be something like the building of virtue or the production of a beautiful character or the production of a work of art that isn't as isn't sort of obviously a product of a work process, but is the product of the effort of life expending itself. So talk a little bit about not just work itself, but sort of a Platonic understanding of work. So is John Paul II inherently a Platonist thinker regarding work? I think particularly of Laborum Exertions, his wonderful encyclical on work. I ended up not including uh, John Paul II, in part because I was surprised to see uh, the extent to which his encyclical, to which you just referred, really borrows uh, heavily or relies upon John Locke's analysis of work, which is one that I thought really takes us away from some of the, the pre-modern conceptions. And for the first time, in my view, ties work inherently to the production of money, which is something that Plato, for instance, strenuously opposed. In his view, work is not inherently related to the earning of money and that that is a different art that could be practiced alongside and generally is practiced alongside a number of other possible crafts or things that we would want to call a person's job but it's not it's not generative of money inherently inherently for plato work is directed toward the improvement or the remediation of some flaw in an aspect of reality so it meets a, it meets a genuine need and it's possible to make money at work, of course, and in most cases, people do, but it's not intrinsically ordered to the production of money. For Locke, uh, property follows upon labor because you have a property or right to property in your own person, according to his analysis, which it seems to me may very well uh, contravene directly something like the claim of St. Paul that you don't have a claim to your own person, <laughs> that you are not your own. And uh, I wonder whether Locke doesn't sort of take us down ultimately a real bottleneck that leads us to some of the problems of modern liberal society as it's currently ordered that we were already alluding to at the beginning of our conversation. Locke, I think, has a faulty view of liberty. I think Locke also overemphasizes and does so in a way that is, that is heretical, the Genesis injunction to take dominion over the earth. According to a popular thesis by Lynn White Jr., the, that biblical mandate is the ultimate origin of a lot of our problems with the environmental depredation. I found in my study of the history of the philosophy of work that there is very little uh, expatiation on that idea in pre-modern thinkers, very little. Uh, it really seems to me to come to its own in the modern period, and especially with Locke. I also think that Locke has a view of the fall that entails that labor is actually a post-lapsarian condition and not a pre-lapsarian condition. For the, for the monastics, for all the theologians of the Middle Ages, they were very clear in their affirmation up through Luther that work was part of the created order, that human beings were made to work. This was a surprising revelation to my students when I taught this material at Harvard. The, the one thing they found most alarming was that 
Adam had a job in the Garden of Eden and was therefore meant, according to the created origin and the perfected state of humanity, to work. Uh, they all seemed to be under the impression that he was meant to sort of loll about enjoying the fruits of of the garden without doing any kind of tending or keeping of the garden. But of course, that's exactly what he was enjoined to do by God. So I think there are a number of ways in which Locke uh, takes us away from the Platonic tradition. And I was surprised to find that John Paul II and that encyclical dependence, I thought a great deal without mentioning Locke by name, but depended a great deal on Locke's basic uh, view of these matters. And then attempted, I think, to sort of limit their most pernicious possible implications. I'm not sure that will work. I'm not sure if you can do that having sort of begun from metaphysical foundations or theological foundations that are unsound in the first instance. So I'm not convinced that John Paul II is actually in line with this tradition in, in every way that he might be from the very beginning. It seems to me, though, that his articulation of the objective and subjective nature of work, at least in that sense, seems to be flowing from a Platonic tradition. Sure, that there's scope for something like the way in which work meets certain inner needs or doesn't just sort of produce, say, effects in the external world, but has an effect on the human being. I think that's right. He's sensitive to the ways in which uh, work is a source not just of money, but is a source of meaning, of community, um, of affirmation. It's a certain kind of dignity that comes from work that I think he wants to support. And and that seems right to me. I think that's that's correct. And I think his appeals to the necessity for work to uh, be adequately compensated for a person to, say, sustain a family or things of that sort, that work be an opportunity for building of community. And of course, he's thinking here certainly of the power of the labor unions in Poland and the effect that they had on overthrowing the Soviet regime. So I think he's aware of, of what work can do at its best, but I'm not sure that he has the the fundamental principles in place to really vindicate those intuitions or to support them more more um, in a more grounded way. And one other thing that I notice as I'm reading John Paul II, and you just alluded to this, is that he seems to me to have the Polish steel worker in mind. Uh, and so he's really sort of grounded in this industrial economy when he thinks about what work is. So I also saw that in your book, the last philosopher you cover is Simone Weil, who died in 1943, a society was still fully entrenched in industrial society. So has the philosophy of work caught up with the conditions of work in a post-industrial society? Who are sort of the writers thinking hard about what this means since the nature of work has changed so tremendously in the last you know, 60, 70 years? It's very difficult to say. I don't think philosophy of work uh, officially has caught up. No, I don't think so. Kwame Apia uh, came and gave a talk, a two-part talk on work here at Harvard a couple of years ago. I thought it was very good, but it, it didn't necessarily speak. It spoke out of some of the same kinds of concerns and themes that are present in my book and that are present in the tradition, but I'm not sure it broke new ground specifically in terms of speaking to the realities of a sort of post-industrial economy. I'm not sure I'm seeing that being done in formal circles. I think Derek Thompson's article in The Atlantic on the religion of workism, I thought was an effort to speak to that. And it's it's a it was an awareness that work is now being approached by the wealthy in a way that is more consuming of leisure time rather than yielding of leisure time. It's being invested with perhaps too much expectations of providing meaningfulness. And the degree to which, say, young people are now saying by a factor of 95%, that the most important thing in their future is to have a fulfilling career, this outstrips the answer to make a positive impact on other people's lives, which only 81% of young people are saying, and the answer to be happily married, which only 47% of people, young people are ranking as their top priority out of life. So he worries that that's, that that's a change insofar as work is no longer being viewed as a potential source of drudgery in need of reform or an area of life that needs to be limited in terms of its impact and absorption on our mental and physical energies, but actually is being freighted with too much in the way of expectation that it will deliver all possible goods to the human being, including something like a source of meaningfulness, a source of dignity, a source of affirmation, and perhaps the post-industrial economy is demanding too much of us. You look at the kinds of zip codes where Amazon you know, wants to build a new headquarters, and they tend to be in areas where there are high concentrations of young college graduates who are unmarried. 
this is the perfect employee now, right? For the, for the knowledge economy is someone who has 80 uh, hours a week to give to the job and who is prepared to give them in the hope that somehow that will deliver all possible goods, that there's, that there's little else for which they have to live. So that's a somewhat disturbing sign. And I'm going to return to this question of workism in a little bit, but I am interested in thinking through some of the, the implications of platonic thinking for in the post-industrial economy. So one, one question I have is, what are the internal goods associated with working, for example, the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company? They can be difficult to discern in the way that we've constructed such jobs now. So I'm thinking here of um, Zainab Tan, who works at uh, MIT Sloan Business School, formerly of Harvard who speaks about what she calls a good jobs program. And the idea of the good jobs program is that we look at jobs like Dunder Mifflin, or we look at jobs, uh, especially in retail or in service industries, and we sort of throw our hands up at those and think, well, those are just not ever going to be good jobs, and it's sort of too bad that somebody has to do them. But she's not content with that stance of resignation and says, well, the fact is that they, they those can be good jobs, but they take certain kinds of restructuring of expectations. We have to, I think, make of those positions jobs that are actually, the occupants thereof are actually being listened to by management, and management is prepared to be responsive to what they're hearing from people who work, uh, say, lower level service sector type positions. Those people have to have their time scheduled in a respectful manner that recognizes that they cannot be told one week out what their schedule is for the next week but that they have other things in their life that they have to plan around. And so I think we do need, in order to sort of see what the internal goods of such a job might be, we need certain kinds of structural rearrangements to how those jobs are performed. And she's shown with with a tremendous number of case studies uh, that there's evidence-based reasons to believe that these strategies work. Retention in such positions is notoriously uh, low, but it can be changed uh, a great deal if people who occupy such positions feel that they are being acknowledged and that their opinions and their observations of their working conditions are actually being responded to in a meaningful way. So, you know, rather than say, dictate that every store has one hour to unload the contents of a delivery truck, you know, if at one store there's 50% larger retail footprint, the workers say, look, we, we can't unload a truck in an hour, we need an hour and a half then management has to be prepared to say, okay, you got an hour and a half, no problem. The internal good of a position like that could be something like empowerment, something like dignity, right? Something like control over the quality and type of work that you're doing. But it needs to be, that will only be possible if there are certain kind of structural changes that are made. We have a mountain of social science evidence, right? That certain kinds of features to any job, no matter how seemingly um, menial or beneath the recognition of academicians it might appear to be, any job can be improved. And they are they are sort of things that you would expect. Task variation, right? The ability to, to do different kinds of things, right? The ability to set your own schedule, your own priorities, the sense that you are uh, heard and acknowledged and responded to uh, meaningfully uh, at your job. I mean, these are things that are possible in any work setting, but we have to be resolved to actually make them possible which is something that we've denied workers in various sectors fairly aggressively and have told ourselves that it can't be any other way when the fact is it can. And there are businesses that do conduct themselves according to these principles. So in his book, Corrosion of Character, Richard Stennett argues that one of the problems with contemporary work is that it's often exceedingly abstract. What impact does the abstract nature of much post-industrial work have on the worker? I think it can be demoralizing for a great many people I think that there is a certain type of individual for whom the pride of being able to point to something that they have made is extremely important, extremely profound and rewarding. I think for some people, it is difficult to take the same sense of pride in a job that is so abstract that it seems to produce nothing. And this is perhaps part of what lies at the basis of David Graeber's book on bullshit jobs, right? Is that These are jobs that are what they are because they generate nothing of value. And one of the consequences, it seems to me, of the collapse of the industrial economy in this country is that there's a certain kind of worker for whom the ability to point to something, a motorcycle, a building, right, uh, someone's home, a swimming pool, 
you know, be able to say, I made that, right? You know, that opportunity is lost. And so I think there is a concern that, yeah, and a lot of more abstract forms of employment, forms that perhaps, you know, you or I, or a lot of people listening to us, um, are find perfectly rewarding and satisfying. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned Graver, because this is literally my next question. As you alluded to, David Graber wrote this book called Bullshit Jobs, and he estimated that about 50% of jobs meet no real explicit human need. Is this an overestimate or an underestimate? <laughs> yeah. 50%. I guess that's a safe, that's a fairly safe bet, right? If you get you know, it, it's easy to make the case that that's neither exaggerated nor, uh, nor deflated. So if you, if you sort of split it down the middle. That's tough to say. I, I I don't know. I don't know enough about sort of, you know, where jobs are currently allocated or sort of like, you know, what what surviving percentage of individuals say do in fact still work in in sort of productive arts, right? Or in or in manufacturing or, or things like that. I'm not sure where where we're at numerically. It seems to me that certainly the danger of your job uh, failing to meet a specific human need is probably higher in in the more abstract areas or the more knowledge economy areas, right? It's it's easier to argue that a that a, a job that's productive of something of actual value also answers to a genuine human need. But to me, this is I mean this this standard was set by Plato himself, right? This is what he thinks makes a techne what it is, right? You know, a craft is something that answers to a genuine human need and solves it, right? I think we probably have a, a fair number of jobs today that cannot be said to meet that rather elementary criterion. So what's the proper response of someone who finds themselves in stuck in a bullshit job? So it seemed like this is actually part of Jonathan Malesic's argument in some of his earlier papers that the vast majority of jobs are bullshit jobs. What you then need to do is focus on the internal goods of the job and to grow in virtue through the job because you recognize the job itself is bullshit. Is that the response or is there something, is there some other possibility of responding when you find yourself within a bullshit job? I think it's possible to, there's a number of possible responses. I mean, one, one would be to consider the possibility that, that you need a different job, which is, <laughs> you know, one with the, that perhaps answers to the, to that, to that need a little more urgently. And, you know, we have a, we still have, I would like to hope, you know, a fair degree of social mobility in this country that would have, that would afford such opportunities, particularly perhaps, you know, that, um, if you're like Matthew Crawford and you decide to ditch the think tank for, you know, learning how to repair motorcycles, you know, training programs, learning how to repair motorcycles are not that expensive, right? I mean, you know, like compared to say getting another, you know, getting another PhD or something in the humanities, right? You know, there are opportunities to, to retrain in directions that we maybe don't seem obvious to the person who's been herded into college or uh, college and graduate study, you know, and is now facing uh, a mountain of debt potentially. One could also, I think, and I think Malaysia is right about this. Like there is scope to focus on the internal goods of a of a job that are perhaps themselves not inherently as rewarding as one might like. There are still opportunities, I think, to realize the good that comes from a certain uh, liturgical practice, even if your work is repetitive or mundane. There's a certain kind of shaping of the soul that uh, takes place through that. And there is a certain kind of discernment that is required to find the value within such settings. Sometimes they involve things like the exercise of, say, something like um, practical reason. You know, if you talk to people, say, who work in a hospital, say, like uh, cleaning, you know, cleaning up the floors, job crafting, you know, there's some evidence that job crafting is an effective way of uh, getting people to think about the genuinely internal goods of their own work. You know, in a hospital, the limiting of potential for infection to already vulnerable patients is an incredibly important thing to do. You know, if you think of your work as not so much scrubbing floors, but as something like aiding in the safety and healing of the patients in the hospital, that might alter your outlook considerably, right? You might think about your work in a much more elevated way. If you realize that, say, the cleaning uh, needs to be done say at certain times or with a certain amount of discretion, right? Not to be in the way of more important things that are perhaps happening on an emergency basis in the hallway, for instance, or not in such a way as to disrupt uh, grieving uh, families that have gathered around the bedside of a dying patient, then you're exercising practical wisdom, right? You're deciding, you know, this is not really the right time, or this is the right time, or this is my priority right now, or this is not my priority right now. And those are things that regrettably don't show up in the description for that job, you know, but what are we really looking for? So how do you think, 
Plato would understand contemporary experiences of burnout. What, what might be his account of that experience? It's conceivable that such a person has attempted to do too much. I think he thinks of work as being limited in its expertise. And we tend not to think about this, or maybe we, we want to believe in something like critical thinking or sort of portable skills that somehow, you know, what we're being trained in or what our work is asking for us is some kind of sort of nebulous skill set that is as valuable in one setting as another. And maybe that leads to people imagining that they can be omnicompetent or that they can sort of do everything that a job requires. Whereas I tend to think that he looks at work as being ultimately devoted to one area of expertise and that the limits to such knowledge are precisely that a person who is very capable and knowledgeable in one area is tempted to imagine themselves capable and knowledgeable in another. And I think we saw this a little bit in sort of the shift that we could maybe date to somewhere in the 90s, perhaps, you know, that there was this expectation that somehow if you were a CEO and you had been successful at one company or in one industry, that you should really be hired in some other industry or for some other company, and you would be bound to be just as successful there as you were before. That somehow being a CEO was its own expertise. And that contrasted with a sort of an older model, right? You know, sort of think of the, the Lee Iacocca you know, uh, paradigm, you know, where you ascend to the chairmanship of General Motors, having started at the bottom, right? You know, and having worked your way all the way up. And I think, I think Plato would say, you know, that's because that person knows cars, right? And they know them intimately, right? With sort of fingertip feel for how they're put together. And that knowledge may enlarge to the point that you really know all aspects of what it takes to make cars, but you should not assume that you know everything else as a result, right? Or that your expertise is immediately sort of transferable to other kinds of potential application. It may not be so. And I think that some of the experience that we've had has probably proven that there are, are limits to that, that, you know, that it's, it's not necessarily the case that a successful executive in one area is going to automatically be successful in another area, that it may be that that skill set is more tied to uh, a narrow horizon of knowledge and understanding, uh, a narrower one than we've, than we've been led to believe. So I want to talk a little bit about this notion of work is, and you brought this up earlier, and it was really the last chapter in your book, which I thought was really interesting. So how many hours per day should the proper Platonist work? I mean, in proper sort of employment work. Yeah. It'd be difficult to say with some kind of what, universal recommendation. I think in part, they should be working with a certain spirit as opposed to with a certain, say, number of hours in mind, right? And we've spoken to that a little bit already, right? That sort of the attitude that one brings to work changes perhaps the way that you think about it and what you're gaining from it, right? Many people work, I think, jobs that they are not that excited about because they have higher goods in mind. And I think that's perfectly acceptable, right? A person say, you know, very often, you know, say we see this with, with first generation folks who come to a, to a new country, they may very well work jobs that are beneath them, you know, in terms of their level of education and accomplishment from the culture that they, they relocated from. I've seen this in my own family, but they do that because they have in view the success of their children, for example, right? And the expectation that while I may have to put up with an, an inadequate job or a job that doesn't really allow me to develop my gifts to the highest possible level, I have in view a higher good. And that good is the opportunity that my children will have to succeed, right? And to allow their talents to really flourish. And that's something we've seen human beings do, you know, over the, over the eons. And I think it's a perfectly acceptable attitude to take to work for a Platonist because a Platonist is always going to be able to say, there is something higher than this, right? you know, that no, no work is ultimate, right? And this is, this is the danger of workism is that it's being elevated to a, a place of ultimacy, so I think if there are, there are alternate goods for which you're working, you know, the number of hours or the amount of work you do may be a function of that, right? You know, what am I trying to accomplish you know, or what need am I trying to meet, right? And if the need is to feed the family, you know, then, then that may involve more work of a paid sort of official nature than you might like. 
but it may be that that is the sufficient motivation for doing it. So you see one particular reaction against workism is this idea of quiet quitting. We sort of mm. keep the job, you're not very engaged and you kind of sort of do the work, but not really. And so one interpretation of this is a virtuous rebellion against what is a disordered system. Yeah. But at the same time, it could also be interpreted as reneging on some unspoken agreement with your boss, right? They thought they were getting one thing. You said, sorry, I'm rebelling against workism, so I'm just not going to work. Is quite quitting a moral act? I can see the temptation in a way because I feel like, as I've said already, I think there are systematic changes that are needed and that we have good evidence to believe are effective, right? I mean, you know, they're not just morally motivated, right? You know, but like the willingness of management to listen to workers and respond to their genuine needs and requests and insights and observations, I think a moral case can be made. But it's also the fact that I think this just makes your company a better company, right? I mean, I think it, it you know, it, it minimizes expenses, it minimizes needless turnover, there are certain kinds of um, economic benefits that come with it. So I could see a person who feels themselves trapped and unable to change systematic conditions in ways that I've already suggested are desirable, both economically and morally, you know, might very well be tempted to a kind of, yeah, a kind of passivity, right, or a kind of resignation, while yet remaining, as it were, on the job. The caution, I suppose, would be, you know, are you thereby, you know, removing yourself from the opportunity to realize genuine goods that might yet be present in terms of, say, the building of community, the opportunity to, in fact, change uh, your environment from within that is a worry, I think, both for the dissatisfied and also it's, it's a worry even for the, for the highly satisfied. I mean, you know, we, we have good reason to think from, a, from quite a bit of social science evidence that people who look at their jobs as not sort of something that they're just sleeping through, but something that they feel called to, right, you know, often have very strong senses of meaningfulness in their lives, very high degrees of satisfaction. Interestingly, we see this uh, very prominently among people who work with animals, zookeepers, veterinarians, that they feel at very large percentages that they are called to their work and that there's nothing else that they could do, right, that they could see themselves doing. But there's actually the downside to that is that there's there's opportunity for exploitation there as well, right? I mean, because if you feel as if your job is a call and you can't imagine ever doing anything else, then maybe I don't have to pay you that well to do it, right? You know, or maybe I can ask quite a bit and it turns out you're pretty willing to do, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe say dangerous, difficult or unpleasant tasks because you can't see yourself doing anything else. So, you know, I, it seems to me that there are a couple of different ways that people could maybe fail to miss out on the internal goods of a work practice. And this, this would be one of them. Although again, I'm not, I'm not prepared to say, you know, I, I wouldn't be prepared to sort of condemn that outright simply because I do understand what would motivate it, you know, particularly in a situation of, of powerlessness, right? So how do we think about the relationship then between meaning and work? There's obviously these two poles, right, where on one side, we obviously know that work is very important for meaning in life, but at the same time, workism seems to be that relationship between work and meaning that's disordered. So how do you think about that relationship? Yeah, I think, I guess I'm part of why I was interested in the Platonic tradition as such is that I think it navigates between these two extremes. I think that's part of why I find it attractive is that there is, there is certainly a strong correlation between uh, work that is satisfying and self-reported meaningfulness. People derive a lot of meaning from their work. And, and often, I think, in ways that, again, we have to be very careful not to be elitist about, right? You know, that, that the elitist sort of looks at certain sectors, right? You know, looks at Dunder Mifflin, let's say, and says that, you know, I cannot imagine that that would be meaningful for people. Often it is, right? You know, and we should not bring sort of elitist judgments or preconceptions to our assessments of what kind of work people are capable of finding meaningful because there's a wide range, right? There's quite a bit of working experiences that people can find meaningful and that contribute to their sense of meaning in life very positively. The other thing that we can certainly say with a, with a great deal of scientific assurance from the social science literature on this is that unemployment is one of the most damaging things to your sense of life satisfaction and self-reported meaning. It is an effect that lasts, that the longer unemployment goes on, the more severe it is, which suggests uh, is one of the ways in which we, we are able to nudge closer to a causal inference, right? You know, we're, we're constantly told that correlation is not causation, and that's true. 
But one thing that we do see is that there's reason to believe in causal inference where there's some what we call a dose effect, right? Where, you know, one month, you know, of unemployment has a, a one one twelfth impact on your life satisfaction. Twelve months has twelve times worse an impact on your life satisfaction. Twenty-four months, twenty-four times worse, right? So the longer that unemployment goes on, the worse it is for your long-term life is that uh, satisfaction. This is even more so true than than other what you would think comparably traumatic events in life, or even arguably worse events. For instance, including the death of a loved one. The death of a loved one always has an immediate and very harmful uh, impact on a person's life satisfaction. But you actually tend, on average, to get over that and to have uh, life satisfaction return to baseline much more rapidly than you do in when you're facing unemployment. So unemployment is a really damaging state of affairs. We know we know that with with a with a fairly high degree of confidence. Again, a wide range of work can be meaningful and has a very positive impact on meaning. But I suspect that there's a law of diminishing returns in much the way that we see there's a law of diminishing returns with income, right? So that people who are insu- have insufficient money coming in to meet their needs are very unhappy and very unfulfilled and with, with good reason. People who have adequate income flow for their needs report very high degrees of meaning in life and life satisfaction. And then people with astronomically high incomes actually tend to drop off again, that their the likelihood of their having uh, self-reported meaning in life or life satisfaction starts to actually dip back down. And so there's a there's I would suspect there's something similar when it comes to work, that as work becomes freighted with more and more expectations of meaning, it actually starts to deliver less and less. So I want to talk a little bit more about meaning more generally. So I want to put this in the context of my students. So as part of one of my classes, I ask students to talk a little bit about what their lives mean. And they struggle. And actually, I've noticed that they've, it's been increasingly difficult over the years that I've been teaching for them to really articulate what their lives mean. So if meaning is really comprised of purpose, significance, and coherence, what do you think my students are most missing? That's difficult to say. I haven't been in the classroom in a long time, and I, I, I feel the deficit of that because I, can, I know I'm no longer as intimately aware of what kinds of uh, challenges young people are facing. All I can do is sort of observe these and look at some of the statistical problems. It's likely, I think, that coherence, which in our research methods we've divided between sort of a global and an individual dimension, is probably lacking in part because I suspect education is not conducted around imparting a sense of global coherence, that the aspiration is no longer to sort of provide an intellectual framework for understanding the meaning of human life as a whole. Now, some philosophers are going to tell you that's not a, uh, not a problem, right? That, that we're not, we don't necessarily need a global theory of meaningfulness as a whole. I would be interested to discover in our empirical research what kinds of impacts low reported global coherence might yield. I don't know, but I would be interested to discover because I think if in fact there are poor outcomes associated with low self-reported global coherence, that that might put the lie to some of these uh, philosophical views that say all that matters is sort of a sense of coherence in your own individual life. There might be an open question as to whether or not such things even possible apart from a sense of global coherence. So I would imagine that there are some some deficits there. Purposefulness, I would imagine high-achieving college students would have some sense of that. I think that probably if you think back to sort of David Brooks's report on the organization kid, which is now kind of out of date, I'm sure, but at least at that time, I would think that that student, that high-achieving student, probably has been imparted with a sense of purpose in that they have always been able to be furnished with goals that seem attractive and be motivated to achieve them. If there's a deficit there, it might be that they're no longer sure why they are bothering to achieve those goals or what they really add up to beyond, say, the next thing, right? You know, the college admission, you know, graduate school admission, job in academia, whatever it might be, job in the profession. I could see that purpose unmoored from something like a larger vision of where all this is going could itself be a problem. We, again, split purposiveness into uh, three categories or three dimensions. And again, I'd be interested to see what the empirical research yields on this. But we're of the mind that purpose could be quite mundane, could be sort of like your goal for the day or for the week, that there could be a, a, a set of larger sort of overarching purposes toward which you feel that your life is 
directed, you know, getting in, getting through college, getting a job, and that there may yet be a third and highest level of purpose, which would be something like calling or vocation or mission, right, to which I've already alluded. And again, I don't know how, how completely those things will hold together or if there is any kind of measurable outcome of a negative sort that would be associated with, say, high sense of purposeness or, and goals, but a very low sense of mission or calling or vocation. But I would hypothesize that it's possible, you know, that it's possible that a person might have a strong sense of purpose without having a unified or sort of overarching sense of calling or mission. And that that may be, that may explain some deficit in perceived meaning that young people are experiencing. So in their book, uh, Coddling the American Mind, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt argue that one major challenge to the development of young adults into maturity is the prevalence of what they call snowplow parenting, which is an approach to parenting that attempts to move all barriers to children's success. So essentially attempt to remove all suffering. Could this be part of the reason why my students have such a hard time coming up with meaning in their lives is they haven't suffered enough? I think it's possible. So this is, I mean, the fact that you mentioned that explicitly, I wasn't thinking of Haidt and Lukianoff necessarily, but one thing that I, I could say with respect to something like purpose is that one of the more demoralizing, I think, things you can do for young people in their development is lavish them with unearned rewards. And, and that tends to be the, sort of where we're at. And, we, and we've heard some, you know, with some criticisms of this. But, you know, part of having purpose in life and having been furnished with purposes in life that you then sort of go on to achieve without uh, any kind of real struggle uh, may itself be part of the problem. I think there's increasing evidence that people have to be uh, allowed to fail. They have to learn from the experience of failure how to pick themselves up and continue or uh, re-strategize or reorient or whatever might be needed tactically uh, to address a problem. Uh, I've heard young people complain about the perception on the part of their peers that their peers seem not to be able to do this, right, or seem to be incapable of navigating small challenges without, say, the immediate uh, intervention of their parents. You know, when my grandfather was... 17 years old, you know, he was at war, you know, and, you know, his mother did not hear from him for, you know, except intermittently for five years, right? So that's a very different level of kind of uh, maturity, right? You know, and I think is suffering something that we ought to valorize for its own sake? No, you know, there's a lot of suffering that is entirely pointless in my view, but we do find uh, people with, say, lower on average uh, socioeconomic status also tend to have higher degrees of interpersonal relationship and families and friend networks and support networks. And they have considerably higher self-reported meaningfulness. You know, that um, people who lack those things, that lack close personal relationships, tend to report very low levels of meaning in life. And the reason for this would seem to be plausibly that people with less material advantages rely on those family and friend networks more strongly than people who don't need them to rely upon. And that the source of meaning that they're getting really is, is not material success, right? But is actually a relationship, right? That that's the, that's the real driver. And so does that mean that sort of relationships are, are forged in suffering or are often built up where other forms of suffering are present? I certainly seems like it. So one way I see my own students suffering is just um, particularly high levels of anxiety and depression. I'm wondering, are there different types of suffering in this way? Can, can something like that sort of experience of anxiety, which might actually be derived from the fact that they're lacking meaning, can that sort of suffering lead to greater meaning? Or are there types of suffering that maybe just can't be translated into sort of the building up of, of a sense of meaning of life? I think there are certainly some that are probably refractory to that, right? That that would be very difficult, right? You know, we have testimony from people who have undergone tremendous suffering that they were able to find meaning from it. And so I would not I would not want to deny the legitimacy of that experience, right? I mean, one of the great works on meaning in life, you know, Viktor Frankl, right, is is born of the of the, you know, direct exposure to the horrors of the Holocaust. So, you know, so I, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's, you know, it was impossible for the people with whom Viktor Frankl was associated, 
in the camps to find meaning, you know, in, in anything, right? So uh, if a person says that they're able to, then I will take them at their word on that. At the same time, I suspect strongly that, yes, there are some forms of suffering in which a person cannot find meaning and ought not to be required to do so as if somehow, you know, they must, you know, do that. And I can see why some people also have very similar experiences and came away from them with very different conclusions on the subject. And uh, again, and I wouldn't deny that either. Things like anxiety and depression, you know, I mean, there are factors, I think, in our society as it's currently organized that increase these phenomena. And they are often, I, I suspect, responses that in some fashion are um, warranted by our circumstances, right? You know, we ought not to discount the possibility that we're depressed because the world is depressing, you know, and that there's a certain, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a legitimacy to that response, right? There's a, you know, that being told to cheer up, you know, <laughs> or something in the face of uh, circumstances that are, that are not heartening, you know, is, is not an adequate response either, right? So, you know, is there something that we can detect here? Is there something that we can hear, right, in the experience of persons who are facing this kind of suffering? There is, it seems to me. And does that mean at the very least that we should be alert to what these experiences are, um, are bringing to the forefront of our attention? Then yes. Is it possible that meaning may yet be derived from them for the individuals who experience them? I would not want to deny that preemptively, right? I mean, it seems to me that there had better be, you know, some possibility. But it's, it's, I think it's difficult to sort of say a priori, right? You know, one, you know, across the board that, you know, yes, all, you know, all types of suffering are potentially interpretable as contributing to meaning or none are, right? It seems to me we ha we'd have to sort of take things on a more case by case basis. Well, Jeffrey, we have run out of time. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This is really, really great. And I'm grateful for, for your, your time that you've given to me today. And I'm especially grateful for the work that you and your colleagues are doing up in Cambridge at the Human Flourishing Program. So thanks so much for spending some time with me. And I hope that we'll get to meet in person someday. My pleasure. It was a great conversation. I appreciate your inviting me to it. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Oh.